This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. Welcome, everybody, to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Lecture Series. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the Executive Director of the Birch Aquarium at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Barbara Taylor. Barbara's been researching marine mammals for over 30 years. She works at the Southwest Fishery Science Center right here on the Scripps campus in La Jolla. Dr. Taylor leads a group of conservation geneticists who are defining stocks, distinct population segments, subspecies, and other taxonomic designations critical for the conservation and management of marine mammals as required under the U.S. MMPA and Endangered Species Act. She specializes in estimating risk of extinction and has worked with some of the most endangered species on our planet. She's a member of several endangered species recovery teams and has served on many status review and species petition for listing, chairs the Conservation Committee of the Society for Marine Mammalogy, and serves as the listing authority for the Cetacean Specialist Group of the International Union for Conservation of Nature. You've heard of that. That's the IUCN. In 2006, she participated in a survey that failed to find any Baiji, that's the Chinese river dolphin, portending the first human-caused extinction of a dolphin or whale. As a result, she is actively working with other, other conservation scientists to prevent the extinction of what has become the most critically endangered cetacean on the planet, that's the vaquita, or the Gulf of California porpoise. In 2016, she received the Society for Conservation Biology's Leroux Award as a leader in translating the principles of conservation biology into real-world conservation. That's quite a background, folks, and we are fortunate to have Dr. Barbara Taylor here tonight for her talk entitled, Net Loss, Vaquita Facing Imminent Extinction from Illegal Fishing. Please welcome Dr. Barbara Taylor. Thank you so much for coming this evening, and I hope I can give you an adequate uh, appreciation of this little animal uh, that if we don't do some very uh, quick action, uh, we're going to lose it. So I'm going to talk tonight about what is a vaquita, why are we losing it, why should we care, and finally, I'm going to conclude with what can we do. I'm going to start talking about that animal uh, that Harry mentioned in, in the introduction, the Baiji, or the Chinese river dolphin. Uh, it's, it's a nearly blind dolphin, and this particular individual, Chi-Chi, was turned in by fishermen uh, after being wrapped up in those rolling hooks. And we know actually very little about this animal, except that it was declining very rapidly. So we knew that even in uh, 1998, there were less than 50 individuals, and there was a laundry list of reasons why this animal's population or species was collapsing. And amongst those are the increase in uh, shipping, where you might have uh, both collisions and noise pollution, water pollution, but by far the biggest threat is incidental mortality in fishing gear in these little mom-and-pop operations like you see here. So in 2006, um, I was one of the uh, leaders of this expedition to go out, find the last of the Baiji, to take them into these semi-natural reserves and try to save the species. 
And we went out, and these are the conditions that we were uh, surveying in. It was uh, very unique. That's our survey vessel. Um, everything that you see that says made in China comes down that river. So it's a spectacularly degraded habitat in, in every sense of the word. And yet the biggest threat to this uh, river dolphin is artisanal fishing, which we saw uh, all the way up and down the river. We uh, surveyed the entire historical uh, distribution of the Chinese river dolphin. We had two boats. We were out for 39 days, did over 3,000 miles, covered the range over four times. And in that entire time, uh, we... Uh, didn't see even a single baiji, and we had to face the, the fact that an animal that had been on this planet for 35 million years was now gone because of, of, of not controlling the, the fishing that we knew were killing this animal. So I went from this habitat to this habitat. This is uh, the northern Gulf of California, Vaquita's habitat, and it's a stunningly beautiful place, but uh, the problems in some senses are similar. So vaquitas uh, were discovered just a little bit over 50 years ago uh, when a couple of scientists walking the beaches close to San Felipe found a skull and said, hey, this is a porpoise. What's a porpoise doing here? So porpoises, there are seven species in the world, and they usually live in cold northern productive waters, and it's very unusual to find one that's right next to the desert. So you can see here, this little tiny oval here is where you find vaquita, and they are right in the muddy waters uh, that overlay the Colorado River Delta. They're about a four-and-a-half-hour drive from where we're sitting today. It's one of the smallest uh, natural habitats for any dolphin or porpoise anywhere in the world, and it makes it uh, especially difficult uh, when you have the highly productive waters that are very close to where humans also uh, want to be fishing. So vaquitas were the most co commonly seen in dead and fishing nets. And so we knew even at the very beginning that they were naturally rare. Um, we wanted to know what threats might these rare uh, animals be facing. So back in the 1990s, uh, my fellow Vaquita scientist Lorenzo Rojas Bracho and I wrote an article looking at all the different threats that they might be facing. We looked at pollutants and found that actually they have the cleanest blubber of any marine mammal anywhere in the world. We looked at in, inbreeding depression, and even though they have uh, virtually no genetic diversity, I did a whole bunch of uh, computer modeling and found out that they wouldn't have lost that diversity so quickly just from fishing, that they're probably just a very naturally rare population. It actually makes them potentially less vulnerable to inbreeding depression. Then there were lots of rumors that the reason that there were so not very many vaquitas was because of the lack of the flow of the Colorado River. But the logical argument there is that that's causing some issue with their food. And in fact, in the early days when the fishermen used to turn in the dead vaquitas, there were very complete... Uh, uh, scientific looks at each one of the over 60 dead uh, vaquitas, and they all had very good body condition, lots of fat and blubber. Um, they didn't have anything wrong with them. At the time, we were seeing lots of calves, so we had no reason to believe that these animals wouldn't be doing just fine. 
um, if it weren't for this problem. So there are two fishing villages uh, that are right next to Vaquita Habitat, El Golfo de Santa Clara and San Felipe Bay. And between them, they have about a 1,000 of these small boats uh, called pongas. And each one of those boats uh, puts in the water a couple thousand meters of net. That is a lot of net in the water. It is the most intensively fished area that I have seen anywhere in the world. So back in 1993, a woman did her PhD, Caterina Dagrosa, by going and living in El Golfo for a year and interviewing fishermen and going out and with several other people as observers on boats and estimating the number of vaquitas that were killed. And they estimated that at that time about 78 vaquitas were killed every year. They were killed in all types of nets, big nets, small nets, didn't make any difference. As long as it's a gill net, they would get tangled and die in it, and they died basically in those nets all year round. So this was uh, uh, sort of scary news, but in fact, we didn't know how many vaquitas were out there or how fast the population could grow, so we didn't know whether this was really a problem or not. So now I'm going to uh, show you some footage of vaquitas that will explain why it's so difficult for us to estimate uh, abundance of this species. This film was taken by Chris Johnson in 2008, and it's by far the best uh, film of vaquitas. And you can see that they're a really difficult animal to see. They're a, a little bit smaller than I am. They're about five feet long. They weigh about 100 pounds. So they're the smallest marine porpoise or dolphin in the world. And unlike dolphins what, that you'll see out off the coast here that are in schools and they jump around, you see lots of, lots of them together, so it's pretty easy to see them. These animals are always in ones or twos. They do this really slow rolling behavior. That dorsal fin is about that high. So unless it's absolutely glassy calm like this, it's extremely difficult to see them. And if that weren't bad enough, they're extremely shy. So if there are any boat engine noise around, these animals just slip off and disappear. And so even if you're looking for them with binoculars from a regular boat, you're probably not going to see them. And this contributed to a lot of the fishermen in the fishing communities saying that vaquita are mythical. And you still hear that today if you go and talk to people in San Felipe that these animals are actually mythical. And then, of course, if you ask them directly, have you ever seen one dead in your net, you'll often get a yes. So we went out uh, to try to survey these animals, and we uh, used our NOAA ship at the time, the David Starr Jordan, uh, to do the deep waters, these uh, lines in yellow. We used a, a Mexican ship uh, that was a converted uh, shrimp trawler to do uh, some of the shallower waters, less than 20 meters de depth. And then we uh, used this converted ponga to go way up into the Colorado River Delta. And these two uh, could only use uh, handheld binoculars. On the big ship, uh, we use these uh, giant 25 power binoculars. And you can see we have them arrayed all the way across the, the top of the ship to be able to see these animals. And 
that was an enormous advantage. Um, you can see these are the vaquitas that were seen in 1997. They're almost all in the deep water areas where we could use those big binoculars. Very few in the shallow waters. Our abundance estimate was 567 vaquitas, but you can see it's not very precise, and that's because of that shallow water area. So we knew we had to develop better um, means of being able to monitor these species because even at this time, uh, they were already an, an endangered species. So we looked into using their acoustics. This is a, a vaquita sound, a click that's pulled all the way down to where we can hear it. They live in these really muddy waters. They echolocate to find fish. And they have a metabolism that's like a hummingbird. So they basically are looking for fish all the time, and so we can hear those clicks. Those clicks are really 10 times higher than the echolocation clicks of bats. So they're very, very high frequency. But it gives us a way to be able to monitor these animals. And so one of my uh, science friends, uh, Armando Jaramillo Legareta, did research between 1997 and 2005 where he would go out and anchor in that boat and put a hydrophone over and listen for 24 hours and then he'd take it someplace else, do the same thing. So he would go all the round in the Vaquita territory and he did that between 1997 and 2005. And what he found was is that the population was declining rapidly. Um, and so rapidly that in 2005, in the same amount of effort, he got almost no vaquita clicks at all. And he took that information to the recovery team and to the Mexican government and said, there's something really seriously bad going on here. We need to uh, <clears throat> figure out uh, how many are left, what's going on, and come up with a new method, since this method now is just not powerful enough to be able to monitor vaquitas anymore. So following the extinction of Baiji, um, we came back with this really renewed, um, invigorated program to not take our eyes off the ball. I mean, the Baiji sadly went extinct when no one was looking, and we were determined not to do the same thing. But we needed some methods that were going to allow us to really track these animals um, much more closely than we had been able to in the past, because these big surveys cost millions of dollars, so they don't happen very often. So in 2008, we did uh, repeated the survey and also uh, tested out, brought in an international team and tested out some new acoustic devices to, become a, to come up with a way that we could monitor these animals more closely. So we used the same uh, ship uh, that we had before. In the shallow water area, we used that nice little sailboat. It was towing an acoustic array. And then at the same time, we were testing out this new acoustic equipment. And what we found was is that there were only about 250 vaquitas left. So we'd already lost uh, over half of the remaining vaquitas in the world in that short period between 1997 and 2008. We got the data that we needed to be able to set up an acoustic monitoring program, and the government of Mexico at that time stepped up and put in a vaquita refuge, which is this funny-looking thing right out here. Um, in that area, there's no fishing allowed, and the fishermen were compensated not to fish there. So the 
the little village of San Felipe is here, El Golfo is up here, and then you have this protected area, and each one of those circles is one of these things, which is called a sea pod. It's about that long. It's uh, basically able to detect what a vaquita click, when a vaquita click is made and record that, and you can leave it out for three months at a time which allows us to get about 3,000 days of data a year. So a much more precise way to be able to uh, track this rare species. The other thing that we found was that even though we were putting those sea pods out there in the summertime when the fishing is lowest and inside the vaquita refuge where there shouldn't be any fishing, we still lost a lot of instruments. And that made doing the analysis particularly complicated because you, you had sort of holes in your, in your grid. So what we did was we decided that we would, rather than the typical scientific method of having a couple of chief scientists that do all of the analysis, we decided that we would bring in a team of analysts from all over the world and have the data independently analyzed by a team of scientists. And that has been a really crucial conservation decision because then there's no political wrangling about, you know, the results of the survey. If you have three different sci scientists doing it independently and they all come up with the same answer, then it allows management to move forward without any uh, conflict. And we've followed that same pattern when I'll be talking about the abundance uh, uh, survey that we did just this last fall. But we used this, basically almost the same team of, uh, of scientists. And I might add that um, these paintings, you might see them in the back of the room. I did them because of Vaquita's bad PR problem. Because they live in muddy waters, we don't have any pictures of what a beautiful animal they are. And there you can see nicely what a nice paint job they have. They've got the, they've got the you know, the eyeshadow and the goth lipstick thing going. And they're really just a lovely little animal, but nobody gets to see them. And so it's been a real, real difficult thing to get people to be interested in this animal. So I hope you enjoy the paintings. So this is uh, what we found with the acoustic monitoring. Now, the way that we set up the design to do the monitoring was the government of Mexico, because they put this no-fishing refuge out there, they expected to see the population recover. The scientists knew it wasn't enough, but we didn't expect to see what we actually observed. So if you look in 2011 and 2012, these bright yellow dots are where you had the highest number of vaquita clicks. And you can see that those aren't very different. And then starting in 2013, things start to look really bad. And we picked up on that right away um, and reconvened the the recovery team to look at these data because at the time that suggested that there was an 18.5% per year decline, which is just a, a terrible thing. And the government of Mexico had put together a presidential commission to oversee the recovery of Vaquita, and so we were able to report to this commission, actually I was able to report to the commission, that we had this really horrible thing that was happening what you see here now is we've just um, published the first five years' worth of data. And once we got down to 2015, you can see that there's no yellow dots. 
it's declining at 34% per year. So this is a, an enormous uh, crisis mode. <clears throat> and what happened um, was the, the tangled fate of Totoaba and, uh, and Vaquita. This is a Totoaba. It's actually sort of a small Totoaba. They're typically the size of, a, of an NFL linebacker. I mean, they're a big fish. And they get caught in big nets. And those are the worst kind of nets for vaquitas because their head, heads fit right inside of them. And if you go in the back of the room, there's a, a one that a, one of the paintings has a panda in it. Um, and it talks about, in, uh, in, in a way, you can see them, all of them there. The relationship between China and Mexico is a very strong one. And China had a fish called a bahaba. And the bahaba does exactly the same thing that the totoaba does. It grows great big, and then it comes into rivers and shallow waters to spawn. And so it's, even though it's a marine fish, it's very vulnerable during that part of its life history. And there was a, a, a market developed in China for the swim bladder, which regulates the buoyancy of the fish. Because they're such a big fish, the swim bladder is, is, a, is a big thing. And you can see these swim bladders uh, down below here. And there was a huge market for these um, in the 1960s and 1970s, so much so that the Totoaba was the first fish ever to be listed on the Convention for the International Trade of Endangered Species. And both Totoaba and Vaquita that were caught accidentally in Totoaba nets went on to the Mexican marine mammals list together. But for many years, we didn't think about Totoaba because basically they were commercially extinct. The, the juveniles were still living in the central uh, gulf, but there were no adults to come up, or very few. So there were, they would always catch a few adults. So there was always this low-level trade with China. It never went away. But starting in the early 2000s, um, we started hearing rumors from the fishermen that there were lots of big totuabas coming back. And in 2012, it just took off. And of course, because all of that made in China stuff means that there's a lot more money in China, these swim bladders to the fishermen are worth five to $8,000 for one swim bladder from a fish. So all of a sudden, they turned into the cocaine of the sea. Um, and they, they bring tens of thousands of dollars in China. So this just was a, a huge boom in this illegal uh, wildlife trade to, to China um, that was driving the collapse of the Kita. So we took this uh, information to the Presidential Commission, um, and they, government of Mexico, uh, took this very seriously. And just over a year ago, uh, the president of Mexico, President Enrique Peña Nieto, came to the little village of San Felipe and uh, laid out a program to save vaquitas um, that included a two-year complete ban within the entire range of vaquitas that you see outlined in red here. Um, it put the Navy in charge of enforcement. It compensates the fishermen not to fish to the tune of $32 million a year um, and also had a program to, uh, to 
accelerate the development of alternative gear so that the fishermen could fish but not use gill nets. So they also asked us to go out and do another survey so they could see how many vaquitas were there at the beginning of this very ambitious program. What you're seeing here is the radar screen uh, from our ship in 2008, and each one of these little bright points is a ponga, and this is the, the boundary to the vaquita refuge. So literally, the vaquita refuge was just surrounded by a spider web of death. I mean, it was just a, an un unbelievable amount of fishing effort right up against the border. And of course, the vaquitas don't pay any attention to that border. I mean, they, they go in and out of it. In fact, we estimated about 50% of the of the vaquitas at any time are protected within the vaquita refuge. So this wasn't a good scene even then. This is what we saw last October and November. So we went out and did another survey that I'll be telling you about. But this is just amazing, impressive work. This, is, again, is the radar screen. There's the outline of the vaquita refuge. These little points are actually commercial shrimp trawlers. And this is what we saw day after day after day of no gill nets in the water. I mean, it was just an amazing thing to see. And we were all very optimistic that this program was w working very well. And, and this, we, we were out from the end of September until the first week of December. And we had some amazingly lucky things happen on this cruise. Uh, the cruise was launched by the Minister of the Environment, who's on my left, um, and the governor of Baja, and they hadn't been on the boat 10 minutes before we saw a vaquita. And we were able to take these guys up, all of the, you know, the secretary of the Navy, and show them vaquita, which was just, I can't tell you how low the odds of that would, would be. And then we had 60 Minutes come out, and we'd already briefed them that there's no way they were going to see vaquita. And a minute before they got to the boat, we had a vaquita sighting, and we were able to get them right on top of the vaquitas to pho photograph them and film them. And if you haven't seen the 60 Minutes, you can find it online at the, the title of the show is The Last Vaquitas. And then we had the fishermen out, and we got the fishermen to see vaquitas. So we had these three little miracles where basically it was as if the, the vaquitas knew to appear when there were people who had the power to save them. Now I'm going to get back to the boring science stuff. <clears throat> this is the design of our cruise. Um, the blue area is the area that was covered by the ship. Because we already knew there were not going to be very many vaquitas, we did another uh, strata that we call the, the core area, and that's where we'd seen uh, basically all of vaquitas that we'd seen in the past two surveys. The little uh, circles are all sea pods. This area and the shallow water area, the best coverage that we've ever had. Um, and then we have them out in this area where we have both the visual and the acoustic because you can't actually go from the number of clicks to the numbers of vaquitas. And you, so we had this calibration area so that we knew the number from the visual and we could tune that into the density of clicks and come up with the number of vaquitas that were in the shallow water areas. And we were very fortunate um, in our allowing ourselves enough time. This is all our track lines that were done um, in uh, very 
calm seas where, where, where we could actually see vaquitas. What you're seeing here is the, the core area and the number of the little red dots are vaquita sightings from the 1997 and 2008 cruises. The little wiggly lines are the 20 to 50 uh, meter contours. And you can see that there's these little ridges that come down from the Colorado River Delta. And that even though these animals live in a really tiny area, the areas that they actually spend time is even tinier. They're really uh, habitat specialists. And what we observed this year um, was, in fact, a complete collapse. That, those are the only three places that we saw vaquitas. In 64 days, we had only 14 sightings of vaquitas that are used in the abundance estimate. So the range collapsed, the number collapsed. It was every bit as bad as we thought it was uh, from the acoustic survey. Um, here you see the sightings of the vaquitas and triangles. The, the darker the, the dot, the more clicks there were. And you can see that um, it basically is, is validated where, uh, where we saw them is where we heard them. We did a lot of fancy modeling by that international team. Um, and you can see here, this is the core area. You can see uh, both the size of the dot is the number of animals. And you can see both the collapse um, in the size of the dot, indicating that there's not very many vaquitas left, and also the collapse in the size of the range. And we would not have been able to make this abundance estimate um, had we not chosen to use exactly the same ship. The binoculars are in exactly the same places, and a lot of the observers are exactly the same observers, including myself. And because we had data that spanned over all of that time, we were able to use those data to help us get the best estimate that we could um, in 2015. And this is what we observed. The best, the best uh, estimate for uh, trends is by looking within that core area, the area that the ship was able to cover in all three years. And basically, since 1997, we've lost 92% of vaquitas. This is a, a map from the acoustic data. Um, and it's basically uh, very similar inside the area, um, the vaquita refuge. But it also pointed out, um, un unfortunately for vaquitas, that um, there's uh, densities of vaquitas that are very close to San Felipe and very close to uh, El Golfo de Santa Clara, where the highest fishing effort is. So when you put all of that together, um, you end up with uh, our, our best estimate is 59 vaquitas, but you can see there's some imprecision still. So we say that there's about uh, 60 vaquitas remaining, which is uh, a truly, you know, takes your breath away kind of number. We did some modeling to help the government um, of Mexico decide what they're going to do next. And of course, the recovery team, uh, we were happy to have a gillnet ban, but we always have said for many, many years that gillnets and vaquita are just completely incompatible, and two years isn't going to get you very much. Um, and indeed, if you 
imagine that there's no deaths in gill nets and they can grow at their maximum rate of about 4%, it will take until the year 2050 to get back to 2008 levels, and it'll take until the year 2075 to get back to 1997 levels. And they were endangered then. So it really is so clear that uh, you know, it has to be much more than a two-year ban. We also uh, asked what happens if it goes back to life as usual after two years, and they allow uh, fishing to go back to the regular l levels. And of course, uh, not surprisingly, um, it's very bad news. And, and basically what this graph does is it projects forward that 34% per year decline, and in only five years, uh, you have fewer than 10 vaquitas. And, you know, all bets are off once you get down to that really tiny number of individuals. <clears throat> and this is actually optimistic. It, it, it doesn't do anything about uh, there might, you know, be a catastrophe from red tides or problems with inbreeding depression. All, it doesn't account for any of those things that conservation biologists worry about for small populations. So really, this species truly is on the brink of extinction. So then we had the great fortune of having an NGO come in and really take this problem seriously. And I'm just going to let you watch this video uh, from Sea Shepherd.
So that is just such an amazingly unusual um, bond. I mean, who would think that Sea Shepherd and the Mexican Navy would be working like this? I mean, it was, it was really an amazing thing to see and I think really critical um, to trying to make this work because obviously what you saw was that once the Totoaba season started and the cocaine of the sea was out there, all bets were off. I mean, even though the fishermen were being paid not to earn what they would make normally as a fisherman, it doesn't come anywhere close to what they can make by doing illegal wildlife trade. And so it's, it's still a really huge issue um, that needs to be dealt with. So I'm going to finish up tonight by talking about why is saving vaquitas so hard and what can we do about it. So a couple of years ago, I was asked to give the opening plenary talk at the Society for Marine Mammalogy Conference in New Zealand, which was focused on conservation. And I gave a talk on all the right ingredients, how to succeed at marine mammal conservation. I thought it would be amusing um, to see some examples that actually worked and then compare that with uh, what's not working for vaquitas. And I'm going to talk about one example that's very close to home here, and it's the tuna dolphin issue um, that, of course, was right here in San Diego. Um, and it was one of three things that caused the Marine Mammal Protection Act to be passed in 1972. And in that year alone, uh, our U.S. fleet out of San Diego killed 368,600 dolphins. Um, in the eastern tropical Pacific, which I think is just stunning. I mean, people have no idea how much worse the tuna dolph dolphin controversy was than commercial whaling. It was a spectacular number of animals that were killed. So the law was passed, um, and of course, you know, it was considered to be a huge conservation victory. Um, but then there's the implementing the law. And that was, that was a difficult thing because the law asked the government to be able to set uh, quotas that were allowable takes by the fishing industry. But we didn't even have any abundance estimates. So the U.S. government set a quota for uh, somewhere between 50,000 and 110,000 dol uh, dolphins a year was okay to kill and were immediately taken to court uh, by the NGOs. And the, uh, Judge Ritchie made the following ruling. Before issuing any permit for the taking of a marine mammal, the secretary must first have it proven to his satisfaction that any taking is consistent with the purposes and the policies of the act. That is to say that taking will not be to the disadvantage of the animals concerned. If he cannot make that finding, he cannot issue a permit. It is that simple. So that triggered uh, uh, basically the creation of the program that I am now a member of over at the Southwest Fisheries Science Center. All of the science that you saw behind that big ship out there with the big eyes, that was created to go out and get the abundance estimates so that we could set a quota. You can see that it had a tremendous effect. There were lots of research also done out of San Diego to figure out how you could catch uh, tunas, wrap the tunas, and not kill the dolphins, be able to have them come out of a spillway. And it seemed, everything seemed to be going well. Um, and then all of a sudden, they found out that they could just change the flag on the ship, and they didn't have to deal with uh, all of the regulations. And so the 
the basically there were no uh, ships that were U.S. ships anymore, and the problem started to reemerge. And then uh, an, another uh, NGO came out, and this guy Sam Labuddy went out undercover on a on a tuna vessel took some incredibly shocking footage of these dolphins being pulled up live in the nets and run through the blocks and squished to death and put it on national TV on the nightly news. And this was a, a huge uh, deal at the time. Um, and the, the tuna company said, we don't want to be part of this. We don't want to be part of a, a boycott. And they struck a deal. The tuna companies themselves to have uh, dolphin-safe labeling. And it was only later that that was adopted into law. So it was really the action of the NGOs coming in and exposing what was going on um, that triggered things. And you can see um, that once that was done, um, that the the dolphin kills uh, came way down again. And so overall it was a success, but um, after the passage of the Marine Mammal Protection Act, over 2 million dolphins were killed by tuna fishermen, which is a pretty shocking statistic. As I say, the 2 million is more than all whales that were killed in commercial whaling. Um, There's no doubt whatsoever that many more millions would have been killed without the act, but it tells you how complex it is to, to really solve these conservation issues. And it takes a, a team. Uh, what I like to say is it takes a whole, uh, you know, in order to, to, to bake the pie, you need lots of ingredients. And you need basically all of these ingredients. And if any of the ingredients are missing, it, it's sort of a failure. And in this case, uh, you know, you could see in that short example I, I gave that you needed the science, you needed the NGOs, you needed the cooperation of the users, both the consumers and the fishermen. You needed the people who were implementing the law, you needed the legislation, and you needed the courts. All those had to come into play uh, before you had the happy solution at the end um, where you, you could um, not be killing all of these millions of dolphins. Quite a different story uh, for Vaquita. Um, we don't have all of those ingredients, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Omar Vidal um, just wrote a, an opinion piece uh, in, for CNN that's called Mr. President Save Mexico's Panda of the Sea. And in this, he says, unfortunately, these breakdowns, the ones that you witnessed in the uh, Sea Shepherd's uh, video, are unsurprising. For many years, I have witnessed how fisheries agencies have undermined environmental authorities' efforts to save the vaquita. Another uh, rough point um, it was pointed out by the Sea Shepherd in their recommendations to the recent meeting of the recovery team, where they said that the current laws for punishing poachers are not strong enough, and they suggested that criminal penalties must be used and include imprisonment just as for other illegal substances such as drugs. Financial p- penalties must be greatly increased to match the lucrative nature of the black market for Totoaba swim bladders. And this was so clear when you were out there that basically the fishermen weren't afraid of getting a fine that was, you know, worth half a fish to them. I mean, so what, what's $5,000? It's nothing. There's no prison time. And as long as the, the laws aren't strengthened to make it a felony, um, then it makes 
having the Navy do their job, uh, extremely difficult. So those problems uh, need to be solved. The last meeting just a couple weeks ago in Ensenada of the recovery team, we really we spent an entire day struggling with um, ex situ conservation. And for those of you who don't know what that means, it means taking vaquita out of the wild um, and probably putting them in a sort of a sanctuary, a, a floating pen still in the northern Gulf, but protecting them uh, from the gill nets uh, during the period while we still have this uh, out-of-control uh, Totoaba situation. And, and it was such a hard decision for us, I wasn't sure I could get it right, so I'm just going to read this to you, um, the, the sentiment of the recovery team. Given the continued decline of the vaquita population, Serva, that's the recovery team, considered the question of ex situ approaches to vaquita conservation. While recognizing the risks and complexities of such an approach, Serva concluded that field work to determine the feasibility of ex situ conservation actions for the vaquita is warranted. However, Serva stresses that such ex situ work only makes sense if the gillnet ban is extended indefinitely and does not divert funding and efforts away from extension and enforcement of the gillnet ban, which remains the highest priority conservation action for the vaquita. Any ex situ action will involve some risk to individual animals, and the vaquita may not prove to be suitable for ex situ conservation actions. Field work will proceed in a staged manner with review by Serva at appropriate intervals and the option to cease work after each review. Serva agreed unanimously that capture of all remaining vaquitas is not a viable conservation strategy for vaquitas, which, which must, first and foremost, be protected in their wild habitat. Serva went on to reiterate um, its recommendation of a permanent ban of all gillnets, and we've been making the same recommendation for over 20 years. It should be illegal to purchase or possess gillnets on land or at sea, and noted that past, ongoing, and future investments by the government of Mexico to conserve the vaquita will only achieve their purposes if the upper gulf is maintained as a gillnet-free zone. Serva recommended that we need to continue the acoustic monitoring program so that we won't have another case with Baiji where we take our eye off the ball and bad things happen. Um, and recommended taking strong, swift actions to remove remaining gill nets. So these are some pictures I took just a couple of weeks ago. I'm out there with, with my husband. We went out to look for some vaquita calves um, on the Sea Shepherd vessel. And while we were there, um, they pulled up this uh, big totoaba net. And then, you know, they, they finished their year a couple of weeks ago. And so... I have no doubt that there are these nets that are anchored by these enormous anchors, and they're left at the bottom with no surface markers. And it's really one of the most important things that can be done at this point is to get out there and clean that area of these nets. So why should we care? Um, this is my, my Diego Rivera cheating painting. <laughs> <laughs> the burden of Mexico and the gift from Mexico. As far as I'm concerned, we should care because we shouldn't want species to be going extinct, and that's, that's reason enough for me. 
Omar Vidal, um, in that same article, said, however, it is still up to Mexico to stop this illegal fishery, fishery within its own territory in or order to save this most endangered marine mammal species. And it is Mexico and its unique marine environment that will ba bear the most devastating consequences of Akita's extinction. The attention this porpoise has received has turned it into a guardian of sorts for the environmental health of the upper gulf. Much of the attention and support it has received benefit other endangered species indirectly. Once the vaquita is gone, environmental protections will likely evaporate with it. The remaining marine life, including totoaba, shrimp, corvina, sharks, and sea turtles, will likely follow the same tragic path. As the chair of the Conservation Committee for the Society of Marine Mammalogy, there's another really important reason that people should care about paquitas, and that is they are the first uh, in a long series that we're going to lose to small-type artisanal fishing gillnets. Here are four species of humpback dolphins um, that are found in very coastal waters throughout Asia and Africa. All of them endangered or critically endangered, all of them because of small-type gillnetting. River dolphins, also critically endangered uh, because of uh, gill netting. There's a, uh, this is a orcaella. It's also uh, endangered and critically endangered in both rivers and coastal waters. This is a Maui's dolphin, uh, critically endangered in northern New Zealand, only cause gill nets. And finally, this is what remains in the Yangtze River, the finless porpoise, and they are uh, going down almost as rapidly as vaquita, also due to, uh, to artisanal fishing. So this is something that we should care about if we want people to enjoy uh, cetaceans in our coastal waters. If we don't solve this problem with, with gill nets, um, we're going to lose a lot of species in the next uh, 10 to 20 years. So what can we do? Um, in the short term, uh, for vaquitas, um, it, we're in the emergency room. I mean, I'm not delusional about how critical things are. And the most important thing we can do right now is to get those nets out and to press the government of Mexico to make it a permanent gillnet ban. And without those two things, um, we're going to lose vaquitas uh, very rapidly. In the long term, um, I think we need to find the cure. And the cure is uh, coming up with ways to catch fish and shrimp uh, that don't involve using gill nets. And in fact, we were on our way to the cure before the horrible Totuaba thing happened. Um, the government of Mexico had already uh, put into regulation shifting from using gill nets for shrimp to using this small type trawl and had done some really innovative research, uh, the, both the Mexican Fisheries Department and WWF Mexico. And of course, the consumers are a big part of this, particularly for shrimp. 80% of the shrimp from the Northern Gulf is sold uh, in the United States. And so people are unwittingly um, consuming things that are driving species extinct. And it's hard to blame the consumer because if you go to a restaurant and you say, I want something that's gillnet free, there's no way to really do that. Um, you have especially shrimp. There's, it's very difficult to be able to say where 
shrimp comes from. And, but the technology is there, and it can be done, and I think it's very important that consumers recognize that they are causing this global biodiversity crisis. It can be solved, and they can just start pushing for insisting on food that's imported into the United States is not driving species extinct. And so that we have a very important role as a consumer. And with that, I will open it up, and I hope we have a very lively discussion. So the question is, what are the swim bladders used for in China? And remarkably, they're used in a soup. They're supposed to be, the collagen is supposed to make your skin look more youthful. So it's a medicinal purposes. Um, and and this is one of the weirdest twists in bad conservation practices. Because totoaba are listed as critically endangered, they're now being used as an investment. They're, they're more valuable than gold. So people are buying them and putting them in a safe, knowing that they'll be more valuable once totoaba have gone extinct. So, yeah, I mean, and, and this is, you know, a problem with illegal wildlife trade generally is that, it, you know, they're more valuable if they're endangered species. The question was, is it only the Totoaba swim bladder that has these special properties? And I think I'm probably not the person to a answer that question. I, I can tell you that there are lots of dried swim bladders that are on the Chinese market. It's one of the, the reasons that it's difficult to enforce this problem. The totuabas, because of their size, um, and, and the, the, you know, the swim bladders that are this size are the most valuable ones, and they have very special, so they have these sort of like weird ribbon things. I mean, even I can identify a totuaba swim bladder. So, so, so they, they do bring more money, and they are easy to identify, but the Chinese market is moving on. So there's a, a smaller croaker. So uh, the Totoaba is a very large croaker. And then there's a smaller one that's like this big. And you may have heard talks about the Corvina here before. Octavio, Octavio Alberto does a lot of research um, on those animals. And now they've started taking those. They've started finding the animals just discarded on the beach, the flesh rotting, and just the swim bladders removed. So now they are more valuable for their swim bladders than they are for the meat, which is just a shame. So the question was, has anyone high up in the Mexican government been able to reach out to officials who would have enough power to be able to correct things in China? And there, are, there have been some discussions. China has made it very clear that they get a lot more pressure about rhinoceros and elephants than they do. I mean, Totoaba, it's a fish. Come on. You know, I mean, they, they really don't think it's a serious issue, and in, in large part because nobody's really put the pressure on China to say this is... It's actually, you know, I mean, it's the vaquita that's the one that's really endangered, but they're in much worse shape than a lot of the other species. Not that I think that they shouldn't be doing anything about those species, but China just, it just doesn't seem to be a big issue to them.
So Mexico is putting on a full court press, and the U.S. government in its negotiations has elevated the Totoaba Vaquita thing to one of the top priorities to discuss with China. So that is one place that um, there is work being done. Um, the other uh, we had when we did the cruise, we had um, Wild Aid came out with us, and they're doing a bunch of public service announcements uh, in China so that people... The consumers know there what the consequences, and, and, and it was really interesting because they're doing it on a whole bunch of endangered species from, you know, tigers and, you know, all, 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 well, I mean, it's a long list. And so they're doing all these public service announcements, and they go and they talk to people about, like, shark finning and, you know, do you know what the consequence of shark finning is? And, you know, a lot of people say, well, they just grow them back. You know, and tiger paws. Well, you know, it probably hurts them, but they're still okay. And it's like, no, they're dead. They're not okay. So, you know, there there are some um, campaigns to reach out and try to convince people. I think the thing that had a big effect on shark finning is when the premier of China came out and said, this is causing a tremendous environmental harm, and you're, if you serve shark fin suit at at your banquet, you're a bad communist. And it made a huge difference in China, you know, in terms of, you know, and so, you know, I think some pressure to get, you know, some things like that. I mean, one of the things that had one of the biggest effects in Mexico on turtle eggs was having, you know, one of the head wrestlers come out and say, I'm a real man and I don't eat turtle eggs. You know, I mean, so you need to find some things like that to, to you know, try to make some inroads on, on the people who are, you know, paying tens of thousands of dollars for swim bladders. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.